coming up in this episode. I think uh, Taliban had a good year last year and they're trying to have a good one this year, sir. Right now, I believe that uh, the enemy is surging right now. Secretary of Defense James Mattis told the Senate Armed Services Committee the Taliban are trying to make a comeback in Afghanistan. And Target USA has learned there are some very specific reasons why they're able to do that. Thousands of well-trained fighters from the Afghan-Pakistan border region who used to be part of Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups such as Lashkar-e-Taiba or the Tariq taliban Pakistan who have integrated over the last two years into the into the Taliban fold and therefore um, um, had an influx of real military fighting experience. So how is the U.S. military going to deal with that? An in-depth examination of the U.S. strategy for Afghanistan, plus a global assessment of the terror problem from the U.N.'s ISIL, Al-Qaeda Taliban monitoring team coordinator, Hans Jacob Schindler, coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The Pentagon issued a statement recently saying that, essentially, it has the authority to add several thousand more troops to those already fighting in Afghanistan. But a key question is how are those troops going to be used along with the others, in a war that's stretched out over 16 years. Senator John McCain, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, had a bit of a conversation with Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis about that, and that conversation reflected frustration from both of them. first conversation that you and I had was about a strategy for Afghanistan. We're now six months into this administration. We still haven't got a strategy for Afghanistan. It makes it hard for us to support you when we don't have a strategy. We know what the strategy was for the last eight years. Don't lose. That hasn't worked. Just mentioned in my opening statement, we just lost three brave Americans. When can we expect the Congress of the United States to get a strategy for Afghanistan that is a departure from the last eight years, which is don't lose. I believe by mid-July, uh, we'll be able to brief you in detail, sir. We are, we're putting it together now, uh, and there are, going to be, there are actions being taken uh, to make certain that we don't pay a price for the delay. Uh, but uh, we recognize the need for urgency, and your criticism is fair, sir. Well, I'm a great admirer of yours, Mr. Secretary, and so are those men and women who have had the honor of serving under you. But we just can't keep going like this. You can't expect us 
to fulfill the three requirements that you gave, funding increase, passive budget, prevent a stable budget, uh, uh, present a stable budget, if you don't give us a strategy. And I hope you understand that I am not criticizing you, but there are problems within this administration. I was confident that within the first 30 to 60 days, we would have a strategy from which to start working. So all I can tell you is that unless we get a strategy from you, you're going to get a strategy from us. And I appreciate our wisdom and knowledge and information and all of the great things, with the exception of some to my left here. But the fact is, it's not our job. It's not our job. It's yours. And I have to tell you, the frustration that I feel is obviously uh, palpable because it's hard for us to act when you don't give us a strategy which then leads to policy, which then leads to authorization, which is our job. So I hope you understand that we're going to start getting more vocal in our criticism of not having a strategy for Afghanistan. Do you, believe, do you agree that we're not winning in Afghanistan? Sir, I understand the urgency. I understand it's my responsibility. Uh, we're not winning in Afghanistan right now, and we will correct this uh, as soon as possible. I believe the three things we are asking for stand on their own merit, however, as we look more broadly at the protection of the country. Uh, but that, that I, in no way does that relieve me of the need to deliver that strategy to you, sir. I thank you, General, and I understand very well, as do members of this committee. Just days after that exchange between Senator McCain and Secretary Mattis and lots of speculation about how many troops the Pentagon would be sending and when, Chief Pentagon spokesman Dana White released a statement saying, quote, Secretary Mattis has made no decision on a troop increase for Afghanistan. As he said throughout the week in testimony, the revised Afghan strategy will be presented to the president for his approval in the coming weeks. The president has delegated force management authority for Afghanistan to the secretary. The secretary will continue to follow the president's guidance on our overall strategy. Any decisions about troop numbers will be made only after consultation with the interagency, the Afghan government, NATO allies, and coalition partners. The situation in Afghanistan is a very complicated one. As I mentioned, the U.S. has been involved there for 16 years, since 2001, just after the attacks in the U.S. on 9-11. So for some perspective on why the Taliban is surging and why it's such a complicated situation, we spoke with Hans Jacob Schindler, who was the coordinator for the U.N. Security Council's Al-Qaeda Taliban monitoring team, which has been renamed the ISIL Al-Qaeda Taliban monitoring team recently about that situation. Mr. Schindler, can we start off first by recognizing the change that's taken place over the years? This this team used to be called the Al-Qaeda Taliban monitoring team, but clearly the presence of the Islamic State organization has dictated a change. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, I, we would not characterize this as a fundamental change as we see ISIL, as the Security Council calls it, the Islamic State in uh, Iraq and the Levant, not as a fundamentally new phenomenon, but as a 
additional phenomenon uh, in the wider Al-Qaeda ideology. It's important to note that there is no fundamental ideological difference between Al-Qaeda and ISIL as far as, as uh, their core beliefs is concerned. Um, both organizations want to found a caliphate, so it's only a question of timing and sequencing, uh, which is one of the, the main differences. Al-Qaeda uh, and Osama bin Laden had been quite uh, clear on this, sees the establishment of the caliphate as a project for the next generation, while ISIL under al-Baghdadi clearly said the time is now to establish the caliphate. So we have a dispute over the sequencing, now or the next generation. And of course, we have a pure power play, a, a difference on who should lead, Mr. Baghdadi or Mr. Zawahiri. Other than that, um, there is really no fundamental difference between both organizations. And we can see, especially in the last uh, one and a half years, uh, around the globe, that uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIL networks are willing to support each other. The only real conflicts that we've seen between Al-Qaeda uh, loyal groups and ISIL loyal groups were at the very beginning in, in Syria, where Al-Nusra Front mm -hmm. uh, uh, of the uh, Levant and uh, ISIL did fight each other, and continuing in Somalia, where the Al-Qaeda affiliate Al-Shabaab is trying to eliminate its competitor, ISIL. Okay. Um, however, other areas in the world, we've seen great cooperation, unfortunately, between both both networks. Okay. Um, well said. The uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense said not long ago just that the uh, Taliban is surging again. Does your uh, research find that? Um, absolutely. We have seen in the last two fighting seasons, so the one in 2015 and then particularly the one in 2016, and the expectations are that this fighting season in 2017 is going to be very similar, that the Taliban have increased military capabilities. Uh, in our assessment, um, primarily or, or fundamentally caused by an influx of thousands of well-trained fighters from the Afghan-Pakistan border region who used to be part of Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups such as Lashkar-e-Taiba or the Tariq -e taliban Pakistan, who have integrated over the last two years into the, Al into the Taliban fold and therefore um, um, had an influx of real military fighting experience. And we've seen in the last two fighting seasons, and there is no uh, no indication that this is going to be any different uh, this time, that the Taliban were able to coordinate their military activities across the country, simultaneously attacking provincial capitals such as Kunduz or uh, in the north and Lashkagar in the south, and thereby really stretching the capabilities both of the Afghan national defense and security forces as well as uh, the international forces in I Afghanistan. See. What do you make of reports that Russia has been funding the Taliban, or uh, at least uh, it appears as though the, some elements of the Russian government have been providing funding? Do you see the same thing? Well, we've always highlighted in our reports over the years that uh, there is a problem uh, with the inflow of weapons, ammunition and material into Afghanistan from all corners uh, of the country, the north, the south. Uh, the East and the West. So this is not a fundamentally new problem um, that arms and ammunition flow into Afghanistan. However, it is a problem that uh, uh, this flow has never really been curbed or slowed down in the last few years. I see. So you don't see anything out of the ordinary regarding reports that Russia has uh, increased uh, supposedly its support or uh, help to this organization? 
I would not be able to comment on on particular actions that uh, member states may or may not have been uh, taking in the past. Uh, but clearly, there is a worry that uh, I personally have um, that uh, the region may lose faith in the ability of Kabul to win this fight, uh, and that uh, some groups within countries or some power centers within uh, member states may try to hedge their bets. Uh, certainly, um, we've seen uh, quite a lot of involvement in Afghanistan uh, in the last two years compared to previous uh, times. Let me just uh, get your view on the general standing of, of the Islamic State group right now. We know that uh, it's about to lose Mosul. Raqqa is about to come under attack. What have you found in your last report, which I believe came out several months ago, uh, and up until now, if you have any new information, about the status of the organization and its uh, posture? Um, on the one hand, um, we need to go away from seeing ISIL simply as uh, an Iraq-Syria problem. ISIL has now groups that have declared loyalty to it all around the globe, uh, in West Africa, in East Africa, in Northern Africa, in Southeast Asia, in South Asia. Um, so we do have a quite variety of, of, of uh, groups that actively uh, feel themselves as part of, of the ISIL phenomenon. So in Iraq and Syria, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, ISIL had uh, significant military setbacks over the last two years. Um, in Afghanistan, it is under pressure. In Libya, it is under pressure. However, ISIL is still able to purposefully send out personnel um, out of Iraq and Syria to relocate to other regions, which is, of course, a major concern of ours, as well as send out finances, not only to groups that work with it, but apparently, according to several of our uh, interlocutors, which are usually member states and member states intelligence organizations, into areas where there is no ISIL activity. So apparently investing money into the illicit economy uh, for the day after, which of course demonstrates that ISIL is conscious of the fact that it may not be able to hold uh, um, militarily out in Iraq and Syria for a very long time, and therefore is now preparing to transform itself into a more global network, which of course will spread the threat outwards from the conflict zone to other regions. How do you how do you think they will try to run this global operation if they don't have a physical base to do it? Can they do the, all of this uh, via the internet, or is this essentially a scenario where the damage has been done? They have gotten their ideology out there in the last three years to the degree that. Uh, they've got the following that they need to no longer be or to have a physical presence. Look, I mean, as we had already at the beginning of the military operations uh, outlined, um, we are seeing a, a, a sort of repeat of 2002 when Al-Qaeda lost its physical base. That in no way uh, inhibited Al-Qaeda from, from organizing its network for, for many years afterwards. Um, therefore, what we're seeing right now, and, and a physical space doesn't need to be control over entire cities. Um, wherever there is weak government, um, terror groups can flourish. Uh, they don't need to hold large swathes of, terror, uh, of, of territory in order to organize a global network. Um, therefore, uh, the military operations are absolutely necessary. It's unacceptable that a terror organization holds cities and terrorizes civilians and does unspeakable things, uh, uh, including slave trade and, and uh, the barbaric behavior they displayed. Um, however, as far as the terror network is concerned, um, holding cities and villages is not uh, a core necessity. You can organize this without holding a city. And of course, the internet and, and this, what 
ISIL calls the cyber caliphate, is an, an, an incredibly helpful instrument to the group. And they do have expanded over the last few years their presence. Mr. Schindler, um, you know, thanks again for doing this. You know, uh, reading through your report, uh, I noticed some. there were some bullet points that I sort of pulled out. One of them was the problem that you foresee of returning uh, Islamic State foreign fighters and intercepted fighters. Explain to us what the problem you see, how you see that problem playing out. It's uh, actually, it falls into several categories. I mean, number one, the, the, the returnees, which we define as individuals go back from the conflict zone to the country where they came from. Those uh, fall broadly into three threat categories. Number one, the returnees who left uh, the conflict zone being thoroughly disenchanted with both ISIL as well as terrorism as an ideology. Um, there is a chance for member states to reintegrate those into society in the long run. Obviously, there needs to be a judicial review of whether they've committed any crimes and they should definitely be punished for that. But there is a chance that those will be reintegrating in society. The second category is also very clear. These are the ones who come back to their own countries to conduct terror attacks. And we've seen this uh, um, in, in Europe in particular uh, in the past few months quite, quite strikingly. Um, and the third category is the most difficult one, is the ones that are discontented from ISIL as an organization, but not at all discontented from terrorism ideo as an ideology. So they are willing to, to join any other new terror group that may be coming up or rejoining Al-Qaeda networks. So these are very dangerous individuals, but difficult to crabble uh, from, a, from a, a legal perspective because they absolutely claim that they are no longer part of ISIL. The other category of individuals that are concerning us are the ones who purposefully do not come back to their home countries, those who want to go and continue to fight, um, relocate to different areas and therefore exacerbating quite critical security situations already around the globe. And the last weeks, uh, if you look at the situation in Southeast Asia, actually, unfortunately, um, uh, confirms the predictions that we made in our uh, report in April that this is a area where there is an enhanced risk by fighters coming out of Syria and Iraq going back to the conflict zone there in Southeast Asia, by Southeast Asians traveling to join groups in Southeast Asia, and the fact that there is going to be quite a few senior and long-standing Al-Qaeda operatives that were arrested ten, about 10 years ago on terrorism charges after the Bali bombings. Um, having finished their prison sentence and unfortunately not being really radicalized, going back into society and potentially revitalizing Al-Qaeda networks in the region. You know, I was reading that uh, report and uh, you did, <clears throat> excuse me, you did predict uh, some very stunning developments that have taken place. And that's a part of the reason why you do the hard and difficult work that you're supposed to do anyway. So uh, it is it is absolutely correct that you predicted um, much of what, what we're seeing. Um, what about the situation in, 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 in the United Kingdom right now? What do, you, what do you make of that? I think the, the, the situation in the United Kingdom is, is fundamentally uh, similar to the situation in the rest of Europe. We never had numbers of, of individuals traveling to the conflict zone of the scale that we've seen uh, in the last few years. Therefore, uh, part of the, the risk profile of each country is also in a, in a certain way connected to the amount of people that have gone. ISIL, once it became under pressure, 
uh, in Iraq and Syria, purposefully put more emphasis on, on external attacks and formed language-specific and country-specific groups. So Germans talking to sympathizers in Germany, French to uh, uh, sympathizers in France, and Brits to, to sympathizers in Great Britain, um, trying to uh, not only inspire, but encourage and help them to conduct attacks. So the fact that uh, Britain has a high number of foreign terrorist fighters means uh, ISIL has more opportunities in, in that country than, than maybe in countries with a much lower number of foreign fighters. But it's while it's true that Britain, France and Germany are publicly named as priority targets for ISIL uh, in Europe, it's not the only countries that are under threat. Uh, you've seen the very tragic attack in April in Sweden that ISIL takes opportunities wherever they arise rather than being discriminatory and says only those three countries. Mm -hmm. And much of what they do now is um, inspired as opposed to directed. Is that correct? Would you agree with that? We, we actually talk about three categories. So directed, uh, uh, the showcase for directed attack are the Brussels or the showcases are the attacks in Brussels and Paris, where ISIL core in a very classical Al-Qaeda sense, as it was done by Al-Qaeda, uh, up until 9-11, uh, ISIL Corps was very much involved in the planning, very much involved in the organization, sent fighters, sent money, made sure that uh, the, the operation was going ahead smoothly and had a continuous feedback loop between Paris, Brussels and uh, Syria and Iraq, ISIL Corps. Um, that's a directed attack. We've so far since uh, Paris and Brussels not seen uh, any other example where it was done in such great detail. However, purely inspired attacks are for us attacks where an individual wakes up in the morning without any prior connections to organizational connections to ISIL and conducts an attack. Um, this is also fairly rare. Therefore, the, the third category that we're talking about is enabled attacks, where there are connections to ISIL core, where ISIL core gives information, target packages, ideas, IED designs, uh, um, or uh, sends small amounts of money in order to enable the individual in their home country to conduct this attack. And most of the attacks in, in, in Europe in the last few months, um, who sometimes were portrayed as lone actors or lone wolves attacks, turned out to be of this kind, that it was not someone individually deciding to do something, but there was indeed prior contact, at least to the ISIL propaganda machine, to upload their video uh, where they claim responsibility for the attack. Mr. Schindler, what are the things they've been able to do very well is um, some very innovative types of weapons. Uh, and one of the most recent um, pieces that I've heard about is this supposed laptop bomb, um, the ability uh, for them to not pioneer the technology, because I believe Ibrahim al-Asiri and that group from AQAP were amongst the first to engage in that kind of uh innovative type of bomb but they uh, the, the the islamic state group i am told is 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 getting much better at that kind of technology which supposedly uh, inspired uh, the laptop ban that we've been hearing about uh in the u.s and the uk for some time now uh, what's your point of view on their capability to do something like the laptop bomb Look, I mean, AQAP, without a shadow of a doubt, and Mr. Asiri uh, uh, in particular, has been the most innovative uh, IED and bomb maker uh, of the entire uh, Al-Qaeda ISIL network. I don't think there's anyone as, as uh, capable as he is. The real problem um, is that this is never group-specific. 
specific designs proliferate very quickly. Um, if an ID works very well in Iraq, within a few months, we'll see this used in other conflict zones, mostly first in Afghanistan. So if there is a design out that actually out there that actually works, um, you will see documentaries about this in the uh, uh, terrorist networks. Uh, for example, you saw the construction of the bomb that brought down the uh, Russian airliner that, that took off uh, in, in the Sinai uh, a while back, um, being with pictures and descriptions immediately distributed uh, in, 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 in terrorist fora. So the, the problem is not who develops it. The problem is once it's developed, it can be used by anyone else. And one of the things you also talk about in your report um, is the financial decline in, for the Islamic State group, uh, and you, you, you refer to something called a crisis budget. Explain what that is. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, ISIL was, and unfortunately until now, continues to be the terror organization with the largest uh, income every month um, in, in a very, very long time. We haven't seen any numbers like this with al-Qaeda, uh, honestly speaking, ever. Um, however, the military operations, of course, which liberate areas, which uh, damaged the oil infrastructure that ISIL is, is holding in Syria, um, has results on the income of ISIL. So if you don't hold Ramadi, you cannot extort the economy of Ramadi. If the oil fields are severely damaged and production of oil goes down, you simply sell less oil, which incidentally is the reason why there is no longer an issue of ISIL selling oil across the borders in Syria. It's at the moment a purely internal market within Syria where ISIL sells its oil. Um, so it's getting less. However, one thing that we are going to highlight in our upcoming report is um, that it's often forgotten that if you don't hold Ramadi, you cannot extort Ramadi, but you also don't have to run Ramadi, i.e. you don't have to invest money to keep uh, electricity uh, 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 provision uh, intact or uh, uh, basic water and sanitation issues uh, intact. So while there is less income, there are also significantly less costs. Our best estimate at the moment is that we've gone down from a few hundred million uh, um, uh, potentially a month at the very beginning, at the biggest expansion of ISIL of income, to tens of millions. However, that also means um, we have a much, much less burn rate of ISIL. And we see that on the one hand, ISIL is irregularly paying its fighters, and some fighters have taken on side jobs in inverted commas to substitute for the lack of pay. But we do not see any issue with arms and ammunitions procurement of ISIL. Apparently, there is still enough money there. And ISIL sending out money to its affiliates fairly regularly through a fairly well-developed network of money exchange houses, uh, havaladars, as well as money couriers around the world. And as I said uh, previously, investing money in areas where there are no ISIL cells, at least for now, uh, apparently in preparing for the day after. So there is enough there. Terrorism is not an inherently expensive endeavor. Um, terror attacks like 9-11 cost just over $100,000. Paris and Brussels will have come in as costs much lower than this. Manchester is a question of a few hundred dollars. So it's small sums that, that uh, enable a terror organization that is determined and patient to uh, perpetrate horrendous attacks around the world. Fascinating an analysis of your report. Um, the day after, I heard you mention that 
Uh, and I would like to uh, jump into that briefly before we let you go, because I know you have some much more important things to do, but I do appreciate you sharing some of this information with us and our listeners. Um, the, uh, the day after, what do you think the day after looks like, and when does the day after start? Well, the day after is when when ISIL doesn't hold uh, a sufficient or, or a significant amount of territories in either in Iraq or in, in the Syrian Arab Republic anymore. But that will mean, uh, um, not necessarily mean, that there is no more ISIL in Iraq and Syria. Don't forget, the predecessor organization of ISIL was called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, who survived you know, very much uh, reduced, of course, in numbers, but survived even the American surge, essentially. Uh, in 2009. So there will be remnants of ISIL. And one of the big risks is that now that areas get liberated, uh, Ramadi, Fallujah, hopefully very soon Mosul, um, there will be a lot of uh, stabilization and and reconstruction money flowing into these areas. While there may still be ISIL cells, so what we uh, have highlighted uh, in a briefing to the Security Council yesterday as well, as we will highlight in our report at the end of the month, is that needs to be a great vigilance of member states of what happens with their money once they pump it into these newly re- liberated areas to prevent ISIL cells that will definitely still continue. And you've seen after the liberation of Ramadi and Fallujah, there were still suicide bomb attacks in so those are cities. So, are we talking to, about to take care to to take advantage of this? Are, are we talking about insurgencies? Not insurgencies, but terror organizations. Mm-hmm. I mean, Al Qaeda in, in 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 Iraq was a terror organization that perpetrated terror attack. It wasn't at the scale of an insurgency at the end, but it was able to perpetrate attacks. And if there is a lot of money getting pumped into a depleted war economy now, this liquidity could. Uh, serve to finance uh, al-Qaeda cells around the world because we have seen that there is an established network which uh, ISIL already uses to send money around the world to to its cells. Mm. Fascinating. Mr. Schindler, this has been very good. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today and um, I look forward to another opportunity to talk to you once your next report is done. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today and uh, have a good day. All right. All the best. Thank you. Hans Jacob Schindler, coordinator for the ISIL, Al-Qaeda, Taliban monitoring team for the U.N. Security Council. The key topic today, what will the U.S.-Afghan strategy be? It's supposed to come out sometime in July of 2017, and we'll keep you posted. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for spending some time with us, and please visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's one word, Tango, Uniform, Sierra, Alpha Podcast. And let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's one word, J, the color green, at WTOP.com. That's WhiskeyTangoOscarPapa.com. I'm J.J. Green. And this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Here I'm walking through a field and I'm thinking about a girl just a few years younger than me that was stabbed to death. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America, and each one is called a cold case. She said, I think my dad could be responsible. I think he killed them. These 
are some of those rare cases. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Don't miss a moment. Subscribe now on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or at podcastone.com. And don't forget to watch your DVR, Cold Case Files, the TV show, every Thursday at 10 on A&E.